Welcome to the Peaceful Power Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Claussen, and today I have Dawn Dalili with us. She is a unique, even among naturopathic physicians, she helps with all things hormone, exhaustion, blood sugar balance, PMS, and hot flashes, anxiety, and depression, and the inability to lose weight. So I'm excited to have you on today, um, Dr. Dalili, and thank you so much for you know sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to speak to you and share some stuff with your audience. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to kind of back up first and um, maybe for people who aren't familiar with naturopathic medicine, you know, maybe even starting there and defining what that means in case there's some confusion about um, what that all entails. Sure. I'd be happy to. So, um, you know, I think there are a couple ways that you can look at it. Um, you know, as naturopaths, I have an undergraduate degree followed by a four-year medical program. Um, I'm a licensed physician and naturopaths are licensed in I think 26 states now. So not across the board, um, but there are more and more places recognizing alternative cares as primary medicine. Um, but beyond studying more nutrition and herbs and, you know, like other natural therapeutics, I think the thing that differentiates naturopathic physicians from other types of physicians is that we are trained from the beginning to look at the human body as one unified system where everything is related. So when somebody comes to me, like, for example, I had a patient yesterday who has some digestive concerns and some skin concerns, you know, and some weight problems and hot flashes. And, you know, she's feeling really frustrated because on the conventional side, that's see a dermatologist, see a gastroenterologist, see, um, you know, an OBGYN and the right hand's never talking to the left hand. And she feels like she's spinning in circles. From my perspective, there's no way that your skin could be related to anything other than your digestion and your hormones and your cardiovascular system, because I see you as one system where all of the parts of you are interrelated as opposed to eight unrelated systems held together by a bag of skin. Yes. I mean, that's very much in rhythm with Ayurveda and what we look at as well. And um, I had that, that same thing with the skin and digestion. Someone I had shared someone else's post that they had written on Pinterest and someone's like, Oh, well, I could never do put this oil on my skin because it would clog my pores. I, you know, I just have, you know, really bad acne. I was like, Oh, well, we look at it a little differently. We're looking at digestion is probably the issue there. Not necessarily just putting on like mm-hmm. coconut oil on your skin is probably not necessarily what's actually causing the acne. And so, you know, just yeah. little things like that, where we're not necessarily trained to think like that. So I love I love that you shared that. So how did you kind of get introduced to naturopathic medicine and how did you go down that path? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question actually, because Ayurveda had a lot to do with it. Um, the short version of the story is that I grew up in a family um, steeped in Western medicine. My father was an anesthesiologist, long retired. Both of my brothers are internists. My mom was a nurse anesthetist. My sister's a nurse. So it was like conventional medicine all over the place. And growing up, I, you know, I was really into sports. So I thought, oh, well, of course, like I will be a physician and then I'll go into orthopedics and I'll subspecialize in sports medicine. And it was the only thing that I ever talked to for as long as I could talk. And then I got to, um, I got to university and went, I have no idea why but I cannot be a physician. And it was, um, 
it was really like an emotional crisis at the time because I had no idea what else I might want to be. I just woke up one day with this deep knowing that I couldn't be that. So I studied economics and math because I was like, well, that seems responsible. I'm <laughs> sure that I'll be able to find a job one day. And um, so I just kind of like dredged along. And then I had another one of these, you know, epiphany moments. My junior year of college, I woke up and went, I'm moving to San Francisco. And, you know, I grew up in New Orleans, like California. I had never been in California. It wasn't on my horizon. Everybody said, why? Like, are you going to get a job and then go where your job? Nope. I'm moving to San Francisco. (laughs) So I moved to San Francisco and in many ways it was like, I had been a fish swimming upstream my whole life, just going the same direction as all of the other fish. And then I got to the ocean and I saw big fish and little fish and fish swimming in different directions. And my mind was blown that people could have such different life experiences and career paths and um, just trajectories than what I had known. And I, I got involved with a yoga community and I learned about traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and um, just these philosophies that guided the way that people lived. And it made sense to me for the first time in my life. I was like, oh, this is why I couldn't do that. What I couldn't do was wear a white coat and have a prescription pad in my pocket and spend, you know, six to 12 minutes with every patient throughout the day, not knowing their story and their history and, and writing something down and walking out of the room. But this, (laughs) this other thing, I can do that. And so I sat down with a friend one day and I said, okay, I've realized I can be a doctor but I'm going to be a doctor on my own terms. So I'm going to go to medical school and then I'm going to travel to India and I'm going to study Ayurvedic medicine. And then I think I'm going to travel to China and study Chinese medicine. And I'm going to synthesize this comprehensive point of view that's rooted in wellness. And she said, well, that all sounds great, but why wouldn't you just become a naturopath? And I was like, "I, I don't know what that word is that you just said, but it speaks to my soul. So I went home and I looked it up I had two roommates at the time and I literally cried to them that night. And I was like, there is a medical school for people like me that are, that are interested in holism and natural wellness and diet and nutrition and lifestyle. And like all of these other things that until that moment in time were just um, like figures of speech, things that I had been exposed to, but not something that I really knew how to integrate into a practice. And from that moment on, like my path was set. I was like, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing. So I had to go back to school and do my post-bac pre-med because I hadn't taken all of the science requirements because I was studying math and economics. And, you know, so I I had to do some of that work. It took me almost two years. And then I moved to Arizona and went to naturopathic school. Wow. What a journey. That's amazing. I didn't even know that I mean, obviously you probably knew about Ayurveda, but like, that was like your path and you were going to study that too. That's so cool. Love that. Yeah. You know, I had really been profoundly influenced by an Ayurvedic practitioner, Mm. um, along the way it was a man traveling from India. And I think that he, um, you know, either he or his family had been, you know, the physicians to the Dalai Lama and, you know, I mean, it just, this wealth of information. And that was my exposure to pulse Mm. diagnosis 
I'm sure you're well familiar with, but um, I mean, I think that the, the 15 minutes that I spent with that man was nothing shy of earth shattering mm-hmm. and life-changing. It was like, he held my wrist and then he just proceeded to tell me everything about everything <laughs> about my life and my tendencies and how I could modify my diet and some herbs that I could take. And I was so fascinated by how much he seemed to know about me from this just brief physical encounter that I walked out of that space going, I don't care what he tells me to do. I will do it. Like if he had said to me, you have to do a headstand and paint your toes while you're upside down, (laughs) I would have done it. Like that's how impressed I had been by that experience. And at that time in my life, I think I was probably over-exercising a lot, doing hours a day of vinyasa yoga and maybe too thin. And I had not had a period in nine or 10 months. And I started doing what he did. And within six weeks, I started menstruating and never had a problem again. And it was just one of those pivotal moments that anchored to me that what the quote unquote scientific community knows to be the truth is not the whole truth. Yeah. It's really, really inspiring. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, I always love just that insight that, you know, people have, and just the experience, personal experiences, sometimes that's all, you know, we have to go on and, um, you know, especially when we're introduced to like Eastern medicine, I had a, one of my colleagues was a Chinese, um, medicine doctor and like, we were just comparing notes and I'm like, Oh, this is very similar. Like, Oh, this is what it means in Ayurveda. And just like having that, um, awareness is so cool. So I want to kind of now flip it into some, some stuff with food and having a healthy relationship with food. Cause I think this is something probably the last couple of years, especially people are, um, maybe like, Oh, maybe I have to have an area I need to work on, you know, cause we've all been at home and, you know, we have food on the brain probably all day long. Cause it's always in your cupboards and, you know, how can we kind of develop maybe a healthier relationship with food or even knowing if we already have a healthy relationship with food? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think that, um, the first thing that I think it's important to do is to take a little bit of a step back and to recognize that we all have a relationship with food, whether or not we think of it in those terms to, to just really recognize that there is a certain way that I go about making my food choices. And so it's not only what I eat, but how I eat and why I eat and when I eat that all sort of comes together in a, in what I would loosely term, like that is your relationship with food and your relationship with eating. And so, um, some people have a relationship with food that is very strict and rigid. You know, other people have a relationship with food that's very fluid, but like wherever you fall on the spectrum to simply recognize that there are life experiences, there are observations, there are things conscious and unconscious that really influence how and why and what we eat. And so if you just at least first accept that, then we can start to look at you know, do you have a healthy relationship with food? What does that mean? And and if it's not a healthy relationship with food, then how might we shift it? Um, 
So does that, does that at least make sense as a kind of defining for people what, what that is? Okay. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that like, what I'm not describing is like, are you a vegan or are you gluten-free or are you a carnivore or whatever? Like it's, it's so much further than, um, defining ourselves according to like a dietary strategy. And, and I think that those things get conflated, which is why I wanted to separate them. And I think that exploring the relationship with food is really important because, you know, as a naturopath, it may or may not be clear to your audience that looking at lifestyle and dietary changes is like almost always my first line of therapy. You know, before, before I pull out a supplement, before I pull out a botanical, definitely before I pull out a prescription pad, I want to look at what are you putting into your system every day that is either promoting or, you know, reducing your experience of health and vitality. Because what I learned in medical school is that our lifestyle is the foundation of health. Mm. What I learned as a practitioner, though, is that our sense of self-worth and our beliefs about the world are the thing that are underlying our lifestyle patterns. And so if a person, um, you know, like a person comes to me and they say, I'm a pre-diabetic, I want to stay off of insulin. How could you help me as a first year practitioner? I would have said, oh, this is easy. You stop eating X, Y, and Z. You start eating more A, B, and C. And we're just going to turn that ship around. No problem. You'll be fine in six months. Um, which from a biological perspective may have been the truth, but it was completely missing the experience of the human on the other side. And more facts and information are rarely the thing that's determining why we eat what we eat and when we eat. And so to tell somebody, you know, these particular foods are causing your insulin to go up and then your blood sugar is doing this and X, Y, and Z. And so if you just make these changes, it'll all be done was like speaking Greek to somebody that didn't speak Greek, you know, and, and that's what really motivated me to start looking at eating psychology. Why do people eat what they eat? And that just really led into this conversation about, you know, like I said before, your sense of self-worth, you know, do I, do I feel like I deserve the vitality that I long for? Um, do I have permission to take up space? Mm-hmm. Do I know what I'm hungry for? Do I give myself permission to feel the full spectrum of emotions that I tend to experience over the course of the day? And possibly the most important is, do I allow myself to speak the truth? Mm-hmm. Because if any of those places are not aligned with vitality, we will turn to food or something else, right? Like really what's fascinating to me is that one's relationship with food is not so different than one's relationship to alcohol or sex or money or, you know, for some people gambling or for others watching Netflix or scrolling social media, Mm -hmm. they're all ways that we can distract ourselves from the experience of feeling disconnected from ourselves and from what we long for. 
And so um, I think that's really the work of, of looking at somebody's relationship with food, because as a practitioner, what I have found is that if we don't start to look at those connections, then if I put someone on a diet, they're going to white knuckle it for a certain amount of time before they say, forget this, or maybe some other F word, you know, (laughs) but forget this. And my pendulum's going to swing back. And so what I am often telling my patients is that you can't white knuckle it into health because you'll create so much internal stress that that internal stress will undermine any benefit that you might get from not eating the inflammatory foods. And so if we don't find a peaceful approach, then you're not pointed at health. You might lose weight. You might have a little less pain. You might sleep better, but you're still going to be missing the vitality that only comes from alignment and full expression and a sense of freedom in the choices that you're making. Mm. So I'll like, stop there. That was amazing. <laughs> question. Thanks. Um, yes to all of that. And I think, um, you know, what I've seen and like my mom was a perpetual dieter, like weight watchers, like let's go on it. Let's lose 50 pounds and then let's gain 70 pounds back. So if people are in that and I totally get it. Cause I've had people too. They're like, Ooh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get sucked into like noom, you know, that's kind of the new one that's around like, but if they're like kind of feeling like, okay, I'm at like my lowest point, like, and they can't resist it because the marketing there is so good. They're like, oh yes, but they're saying all the right things. How do people kind of, you know, if they're feeling that, like they don't want to go there because that's tough stuff to feel like that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of inner work to kind of do the stuff that you laid out, which is beautiful. I, I am a big fan of that. But if people are feeling that low, like, okay, just give me the Weight Watchers, give me the Noom, give me counting my macros, whatever, um, you know, how do people kind of pull back and ask those deeper questions? Is there anything or framework that you might have to kind of help people so they can see, is this long-term for me? Or is this kind of my quick fix? I just want to, you know, band-aid this. Sure. I think that's a great question. And I would say that, um, first of all, I, I want to make sure that what I'm saying is not disparaging the quick fix from the perspective that it's driven by positive intention. You know, a person who is at the edge of their rope and just going like, okay, I have to do something. I'm going to do that is, um, you know, still really acting out of a place of self-love, hopefully, Mm -hmm. you know, it might be buried under a lot of things, it might feel like self-hatred in the moment. You know, I can't feel this way. I can't look this way. I'm disgusting. I'm whatever. But to recognize that some part of you is seeking a greater experience of wholeness. And let's at least celebrate that part and to recognize that like, there's still a part of me, maybe buried under a lot of layers that wants to feel healthy and vibrant and full of vitality. And if this feels like the the first necessary step, then okay, right? Like we take the step wherever we are. Um, Then in terms of like a process of actually starting to get to know, like what is my relationship with food? There are a couple of exercises that I use with my patients and anyone in your audience can try this. This is this is not like in the realm of practice of medicine. 
So one thing that I'll have people do is journal usually two to three days, right? So this is not doing a food log, not, I mean, there are some exceptions in which I'll say, I think a food journal is a really good idea. And it's usually to just bring awareness. Like there are a lot of people who have no idea what they're eating. And so for two or three days, if you write down every single thing you put in your mouth, you may go, oh, wow, I had like, I really thought I was eating this. And it turns out I'm eating that good to know. And then I'm like, okay, and then stop. And you want to live for four or six or eight weeks and then maybe try it again and get a new point of awareness. But I'm not a big fan of ongoing tracking of food because I think for most people, it's emotionally unhealthy. Mm-hmm. However, this exercise of journaling is not about writing down every bite or weighing it or, or measuring it. It's about simply asking the question, why am I eating right now? Mm-hmm. And I think if I'm being honest, like why is a tricky question because the tone of voice with which you ask the word, why will dictate the answer. Mm. So if you're like, why am I eating, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and all of your judgment and, and, and this like idea that you shouldn't be eating that thing is conveyed through your tone of voice you will evoke a defensive response. Mm. You know, I'm eating it because I'm eating it. Damn it. Back off. So we, we really want to try to avoid that as much as possible and instead embrace genuine curiosity. Like, huh, why am I eating right now? And then jot down whatever comes to you. I would say that the majority of my patients come back quite shocked that hunger is at best number six or seven or eight on the list of reasons why we eat. If we start to, you know, like if every single time you try to put food in your mouth, you go, why am I eating? I'm going to jot it down, you know? And what people are discovering instead is that they're eating because they're bored. They're eating because they're tired. They're eating because they want to procrastinate. Mm -hmm. They're eating because they're with people who are eating. They're eating because it's the time of day that they're used to eating. They're eating because they'd rather their mouth be occupied. So they don't have to say something they'd rather not say. Um, Or, you know, for some of us, there's like a shame spiral that's triggered by eating. Mm -hmm. But even though it's a miserable experience, it's somewhat comfortable because it's so predictable and so familiar. And when we're contemplating an experience that isn't comfortable because it's not familiar and it's requiring something new and unique of us, we go, oh my God, that's terrifying because I don't have any data on whether or not I can survive it. But this shame spiral about my body and my weight and food, I've lived that a billion times. I know I'll survive it. So I'm going to eat the brownie or the ice cream and I'm going to go down this predictable path. And now I'm in a comfortably miserable place. And so to recognize that, like, if we just start to wake up to what are all of the reasons that I'm eating and then slowly, but surely go, okay, well, if I'm eating, cause I'm bored, what's actually interesting. Like what would actually address the boredom if I'm eating because I'm lonely, can I take the step of calling someone, you know, making plans if I'm eating because I'm tired 
can I find a way to rest, right? Like whatever the answer reveals to slowly start taking steps to feed the part of us that's actually hungry so that food is no longer our default coping mechanism. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so key. I have, I kind of do the same thing with, you know, food journaling. When I start with people, I'm like, okay, let's just get an inventory where you're at. And I ask that on there. I'm like, and write down, you know, why are you eating? And that's the first thing um, I have people do. And I had a module in one of mine and I, I have no idea. I was like, I don't even remember saying this in this thing I recorded. And um, one of my clients is like, oh, stuck with me. Like, are you, you know, stomach hungry, hungry, or are you tongue hungry? Meaning like, you're just like craving something. You don't know what it is. And like an Ayurveda, we're like, oh, if you're craving sweetness, sometimes you need a hug. Like you need some more sweetness in your life. It's not just like you need a piece of chocolate. You know, you might just need like someone to just give a big hug to, or cry on someone's shoulder. You just might be craving that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like and, you know, and turning into that. Mm-hmm. It's I think really in our language, right? I wanted comfort food. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you wanted comfort. Period. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And just, I I love that when, you know, like your answer reveals it, like I'm tired. Well, can you find time to take a nap or like yoga nidra, or how can you incorporate some rest into your day? Um, I think that's beautiful. Cause I, I mean, everyone I'm sure has been like, oh, I'm eating for energy right now. Cause that's something I think everyone can relate to. Cause at some point, you know, like you had a late night or, you know, if you have little kids, you're like, I was up and now I'm like craving coffee at three o'clock, even though I know this is not great for me. And it's just going to keep with the spiral. Like, okay, yeah. can I rest? Can I just lay down and rest and mm-hmm. giving permission? I think that's so beautiful. Absolutely. And I think it's worth saying that some of the things that we discover are pretty easy to be proactive about, you know, and some of the things that we discover will require a support system, mm-hmm. you know? And so I don't want to step over the idea that sometimes what we find You know, like just earlier this morning, I was on with a client and we were doing, um, like we were going through the last section of what I refer to as like eat to win. It's a kind of a a small curriculum that I'll take people through. And, um, you know, she was expressing this real sense of like disconnection in her primary relationship. Mm -hmm. And as she's really feeling how much they've grown apart. Like she's really committed to her own personal wellness and personal growth. And she feels like she's with with a partner who doesn't have the same motivation and attraction to some of those things. And, and, And the impact of that is that there's a distance there that wasn't there before. And she's finding that to let herself be aware of it, was drawing up this discomfort and some uncertainty and bigger questions that she just went, I don't want to look at that mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. you know, which again was like, Oh, what do you know? I'm snacking on popcorn. I'm suddenly eating peanuts because now, you know, that again, it brings me to that predictable place. I'm a little bit numb. I'm kind of checked out. Now my thoughts are focused on like, man, I blew my diet. Mm-hmm which is an easier conversation to be having than do I need to change my relationship? Do we need couples counseling? Do I need individual counseling? And so, you know, like you said, you do this journaling and sometimes it's like, Oh, I'm bored. Well, food's not that interesting, but this is more interesting. And other times it's like, wow, I have a truth inside of me that I'm afraid to speak and having my mouth occupied 
is a really easy way. You know, like we think about the chakra system Mm -hmm. and the energy of the throat chakra is to move out, right? It's an expression. But if we're afraid to fully express, then I find that swallowing something is a very reliable way to shut down and reverse or suppress the energy of the throat chakra. So our mouths are constantly occupied. So then, you know, sometimes it's like, well, the thing that you really need right now is some therapeutic support. You might, you might need to be working with an expert and that's okay. And so I just really want to make sure that it's communicated that yes, some of these things you can do on your own. And sometimes you might find that you really need some skilled support around. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. Cause that's so true. And, um, you know, having that, you know, I guess tools there, you know, as someone I've referred to people to therapists and, you know, in the past myself, just because I'm like, Oh, this is going to be out of my scope of practice, you know, mm-hmm. passing on. And I think that's, that's something that, um, I mean, those are hard stuff. That's hard stuff to deal with. And, you know, it might seem as easy on surface, like, oh, it's the food that I'm dealing with. When a lot of the times, if you dig deeper, it's probably not as probably what's just kind of showing up on the surface. So absolutely. It's such an astute comment. I think one of my mentors, um, Mark David, who actually teaches at the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, um, you know, I once heard him say food issues are rarely about food. And that has absolutely been my experience in practice is that people come and they're like, oh, the food, the food, the problem is the food, the problem is the food. Almost never, yeah. almost never, you know, and then even earlier you were saying that, um, you know, your mother was a chronic dieter. And so then when we start to look at the messages from our family about how we are supposed to relate to food. Oh, you know, and, I have and a what story have there with that with permission. my mom. So yeah, I mean, I just happened. This was uh, it was well, probably eight years ago. This was my insight and my aha to my mom. I was like, "This is why she is like she is." Because my grandma's sitting next to me. My mom's on the other side of her, and we're having um, dinner with my husband's family. And my my grandma makes a comment to my mom. She's like, "Oh, your mother's always loved food. I just couldn't get her to stop eating." And I was like. Okay. And like my mom hears this and I'm just like, okay, like, you know, your 89 year old mom is still making comments, you know, to her. And I'm sure that hurt my mom. And I'm just like, yeah. and says that in front of my husband's family, you know, I'm just like, really grandma? Like, oh, so then I was, you know, that was kind of my aha for like where my mom got it from, you know, and where she probably started the stories, you know, when she was a little mm-hmm. girl. And so I'm like, oh gosh, like that's, yeah. that's some deep stuff, you know? It is some really deep stuff. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the South um, and, and I used to think, oh, this must be like a Southern thing. And as I've kind of lived in different places, I'm like, oh, maybe this is a woman thing, or maybe it's a human thing that we get these messages. But what I was told over and over again, when I was young is you have to suffer to be beautiful. Mm. And um, it was just said, like, there's oxygen in the air, (laughs) you know, just, and I'm sure that the people who told me they they weren't trying to wound me in some particular way. The comments were often, you know, I have a really curly hair and when it was getting brushed, it hurt, Mm. you know? And so then it was like, well, I've got to suffer to be beautiful, like no big deal. And, you know, like the way that that got internalized, whenever I suffered, I was like, oh, suffering is fine. Like suffering is just what you do. If being beautiful matters, then you just take on this willingness to suffer. And, um, you know, and we have to, kind of dismantle and learn like who told me that 
Mm. And, you know, is it true for me? Or can I give that back Mm. to the person that told me that? And, you know, I, I think another really common one, more so with older people that I've worked with, I don't see it as much with the younger generations. Um, but if you were raised in a household that had a really strong, like clean your plate mm. rule, that can really scramble our relationship to food because it forces us to disconnect from our body's own signals of satiety. You know, so your body says, I've had enough. And then you have this sort of like guilt, moral, shame whatever, you know, like swirl of messages that go, no, you have to finish your plate. And so then you have to bypass, okay, body, you need to turn off because I am a bad person if I do this thing. Mm. Mm. And so I'm going to do this thing because no one wants to feel like a bad person. You know, so a lot of times it's just a lot of different angles. And, you know, if I, if I may, I'd say it, just giving that example kind of leads me to another tool that I often use with people that I'd love to share with you in this, this audience, which is looking at the words good and bad mm. when it comes to food. I, I think that we have this tendency to want to default to really simplistic language, which makes sense. But the words good and bad are so steeped in morality that without realizing it, we think if I eat good food, I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. And if I eat bad food, that must mean that I'm a bad person because mm-hmm. good people do good things and bad people do bad things. And so another thing that I'll often do with my patients is just say, okay, before we even start, and anybody can do this who's listening, you can just do it in your own mind. If you think to yourself, what are some good foods? You know, and just notice whatever you come up with. And depending on your food philosophy, you're going to have different things. So the vegan might say avocados and tofu, you know, and uh, the carnivore is going to say grass-fed red meat or liver, you know, almost doesn't matter. The point is you have a concept of what is good food. And you also have a concept of what is bad food. And to just kind of like sit with like, oh, here's what I think is good. And here's what I think is bad. And then begin to notice, how do I feel about myself when I eat from the good list? And how do I feel about myself when I eat from the bad list? But what's really fascinating about the human experience is that there's a part of us that's very drawn from doing the thing that we're told is off limits. And all you have to do is watch any toddler you know, or, or teenager or, you know, adult to go, oh, like as soon as we draw this line and go, don't do that, some part of us goes, oh, but I want to do that yep. thing because you just told me that I can't do that thing. And so by labeling a, a, this whole segment of foods as bad foods, then we suddenly desire them. And then we go, well, maybe I'll have a little bit, right? Like we start to negotiate with ourselves because our willpower will fade and we'll have a little bit of something, you know, a bite of cookie, a piece of cake, um, you know, whatever, a scoop of ice cream. And then this next little voice comes up and says, well, if I'm going to be bad, I might as well be really bad and I'll be good tomorrow. And in my opinion, like that is the birthing of a binge. And it really starts with good, bad, dichotomous thinking. Mm. 
And what I recommend that people do instead is to think, how do I want to feel? If I eat this thing, does it take me closer to feeling that way? Or does it take me further from feeling that way? If it takes me closer, I'm going to try on the word effective. And if it takes me further, I'm going to say that's ineffective. And I'm going to leave morality on the side. So, you know, ice cream isn't inherently a bad food, but it might be really ineffective at having me experience digestive comfort and emotional stability and clear skin and, you know, whatever else the list of symptoms are that are on my goal list. And, but then I don't have to feel like a bad person, which means that I don't have to beat myself up, which means that I'm actually open to the learning. Like, wow, what do you know? That was really not effective. Fascinating. Thank you, body, for communicating to me in your own way, which is my physical symptoms, but that didn't work. And I'm not beating myself up so much that I'm able to integrate the lesson and make a new choice next time. So then I'm not saying, oh, well, I can't have ice cream. I'm like, yeah, I can anytime I want to feel that particular way. Mm. But if I want to feel this other way, that's not an effective strategy. You know, and so like that can be another thing that starts to guide peaceful choices. So we're moving somebody towards a healthier diet, but from a place of following desire and saying, yes, you get to eat what you want to eat. So long as you want to feel this way, then that's what you want to eat. And so again, it's about, it's about to, about bringing alignment between the conscious and the subconscious with food so that we're not white knuckling ourselves, you know, into the experience of the attempt of health. Is this something that you work with, like with your son, you know, with your kids, like, is this something that you can start teaching at a younger age? Um, I would say you can definitely try (laughs) (laughs) depends a lot on your, you know, the rapport that you have with your kid, how old they are, you know, so I have one son, he's 12. I have never had a clean your plate rule. I have always had a listen to your belly, you know, and I've often said, you know, we're not going to have sweet food and snack food, you know, unless you you know, at least finish this. And, and I'll be totally honest with you. Like I've learned a lot along the way by observing his reaction. Mm-hmm. And at some point I had to go, Oh, you know what? I think I need to stop saying absolutely no dessert until you finish this thing, because now he's forcing himself to eat something that he doesn't mm-hmm. want just to be able to eat something that he does want. So, um, can I shift my language so that now it's more about an inquiry? You know, how does your tummy feel after you eat this? How does your tummy feel after you eat that? Um, You know, if you notice that you're struggling in school a little bit, struggling to concentrate, can we talk about doing a little bit of an experiment? Mm -hmm. Let's have an experiment for four weeks and eat this way. And we'll find out if life feels easier. If life doesn't feel easier, we'll try another way. But so when I'm talking to my son, I really try to use the words, try and experiment. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to encourage curiosity rather than imposing my own dogma on him inadvertently, because I recognize that just like 
my mother and her mother, you know, and, and all the generations of parents before us taught us only what they know. And that included you have to suffer to be beautiful for me, you know? So instead of going, Oh, well, I went to naturopathic medical school. I know all of this stuff about antioxidants and inflammation and whatever. And I'm just going to impose a new dogma on you. (laughs) Instead, I really try to look at, um, you know, how can I encourage you to be curious and to listen to yourself? And, and part of that is because as my son got a little older, I started to notice that his way of rebelling against me was to eat foods that I had labeled unhealthy, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like in the way that I, I had really kind of checked my language around good and bad, but I still had a healthy, unhealthy and he was like, oh, you care about health. Like he told me when he was really mad at me and he was like, by the way, you're kind of a health freak. <laughs> and I was like, I think you're trying to insult me, but you're right. You know, like I, I, I can't really deny that. But I, as I noticed that it was a little bit of a power struggle, I just went, oh, we got to back up, you know? And so I, I think that was a story worth sharing just to recognize that wherever you are in the journey, you've got a growing edge and to like, to embrace the reality that there is no absolute finish line. You've always got an opportunity for some inquiry and some self-reflection and some softening. And, um, yeah, even, even when you're the quote unquote expert on something, there's still, there's still room to evolve. Uh, oh yes. Nothing like your own, your own kids to kind of yes, that yes, and on you can rely on your children to show you where those places are. Uh, I know I have a picky eater. So I'm like, Oh gosh. And we started and I was, I was so excited when he was little, he would eat everything, you know, sweet potatoes, black beans, avocados, all the things. And then now, I mean, he still will eat those, but he prefers, you know, mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, fries, you know, so like, what? and you won't try like the stuff that I'll make. And I'm like, man, oh, totally. thought I had this. <laughs> I know Everett came home from kindergarten um, and said, mom, have you ever had an M&M? <laughs> They're delicious. And I was like, oh, oh. my bubble just popped you know it's like he had he had no exposure to all of these things and then school happened yeah yep yep my mm-hmm. son's in kindergarten this year so I yeah. can relate. oh there you go there I'm you like go. oh but thankfully like he the candy bars and stuff like for him it's not it doesn't do it for him like he's doesn't really like them and I'm like all right that's wonderful. I'm not sure how, cause my husband has a sweet tooth. And so, you know, he will, and like, he was like, Oh, I'll make some brownies, but he prefers to do some homemade stuff. So I'm like, okay, you know, I can do that. Like we'll do that versus, you know, having the candy bars. And I, cause I don't want to be like, no, you can never have sweets, but like, how can we incorporate this in a way that would make sense? So I love that. And it's just all, I mean, kids are just always going to test you and push you and make you better. Give you, yes, they give you things to <laughs> three curveballs <laughs> and they have to find their own path at some point right like it's our place to sort of like have some gentle guidelines yep. but to recognize like with Everett I'm like look you I know that you've already got a foundation because I've given you that and you're going to go through your version of a rebellious stage just like I did in my own way and my you know when I was in junior high and high school but when you're old enough to really start choosing consciously 
hopefully you've had enough exposure to different things that you're like, yeah, you know what? This does feel better. (laughs) Yes. And I will say I've had clients who, you know, they went from having a pretty strict upbringing and had to eat all healthy things. And the only time they could have something sweet was at a friend's house. And then they had a rebellious streak. And then usually they would be like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm hiring you to help me. And then they're like, you know what, actually, I actually felt my best when I was growing up back in my parents' house. And it usually wasn't as bad for them. Cause they're like, oh, this is stuff. I know, I know this is how it makes me yes. feel and they can kind of fall back into routine. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's just pros and cons and learning and, you know, everyone's different. I mean, everyone's personality is different and how people respond. So, well, so thank true. you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. I would love for people My to pleasure. you know, connect with you. So where can people find you or work with you? I know you were saying you were, you're all virtual now. Yes, I am all virtual. So um, my website is dawndalily.com, just basically my name. And, um, you know, there is a, a guide there actually on listening to fatigue. So it, you know, if you're welcome to kind of download that and, and get a little bit more to know about my philosophy, but the underlying message is that our body is always speaking to us. And even the way that we experience fatigue has these clues about, you know, maybe our hormonal imbalances, what's working, what's not working. So by all means, uh, feel free to check that out. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I would love to say, follow me on social media, but I think I post something on social media, maybe once every four to six weeks. (laughs) So that's, I love it. You know, maybe not, um, maybe not the most reliable way, but I would say, you know, just check out the site. And if this is work that you're interested in exploring, um, you know, I mentioned before, I have this curriculum called Eat to Win, which is really a deep dive into why we eat. Um, you know, there is a little bit of information about what to eat and, and the extent of that is kind of introducing people to different philosophies so that they can play around with them and discover for themselves, which one works. But that content is far more about the kinds of tools that we talked about today. Like, how is it that I can discover what I'm trying to avoid, you know, how I feel and how food has become a coping mechanism for me rather than something that fuels my life. And how can I find more productive coping mechanisms so that I can put food in food's place? I love that. Well, I just have one final question for you. And I always like to have the, the guests throw out a little weekly challenge to all the listeners. So what would you like that challenge to be this week? Yeah. Um, thank you for that opportunity. Um, I, what I would suggest that everyone does for seven days, right? Just one week you know, one option would be to play with some of the tools that we talked about earlier doing the, why do I eat inquiry? But I I think something that I hadn't talked about yet, which is really powerful is that no matter what you eat, every single time you eat for one week, serve yourself on a plate and sit down at a table, then eat without any distractions. Mm -hmm. So you're not checking email, you're not scrolling social media, you're not watching a movie, you're definitely not driving a car. You just give yourself a chance to be 100% and fully present with whatever it is that you're choosing to eat in that moment. And I firmly believe that if you do that for seven days, you'll discover so much about yourself and your relationship with food and whether or not you even like what you're eating. That, that will, that will change everything about everything. 
I love that. And I have, I'm going to have to have you back on again. Cause I'm like, I didn't even get, I have like all these questions outlined and didn't get through any of like the hormone stuff. Cause we were just such in a deep dive and great conversation. So thank you so much for oh, it's you know, such coming a pleasure. on and sharing all of your wisdom, you know, Dr. Delili, I hope that, um, you know, people reach out and connect to her cause this was great. Thank you. Yeah. I had a blast. And, um, yeah, if you'd like to have a follow-up conversation sometime, we could definitely schedule that. Yes. Well, thank you again. And everyone go out there and spread your peaceful power.